being Halloween, I'm, I'm not going to even say the word Halloween when I come up here because I don't want to give any, any credit to the name Halloween or the holiday Halloween, so I'm just not even going to mention Halloween. <laughs> so, and in order to protest Halloween, I'm going to mention that today happens to be the anniversary of when Martin Luther, the original, not the king, the, Mar- the original Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door on the castle at Wittenberg. The Reformation started then. Pretty big deal. I don't know if you're a student of the history of the church, but it's a pretty big deal. It seems like a, a day for spiritual warfare, and um, I think it's a day for us to... Um, it's a great day to be in the house of the Lord when those around us are having parties. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not anti-Halloween, and I'm not, you know, I'm not Scrooge when it comes to Halloween. I think that when we do things that are just simply um, fellowship and partying and the costumes and so forth. I don't have any trouble with any of that, and I'm not going to wave that down. But there is a heritage. There is a history and a background, and there is an evil streak that goes through that holiday. And so um, I think it's wise for us to walk wisely on that topic. And um, um, I think um, I, I got... I got my mind wrapped around this a little bit too late this year. Next year, I'll make sure that I give you some information about it a little further in advance. But make sure you cover your kids in prayer. And uh, if they're going to be doing anything tonight, watch over your children. Tonight of all nights is the wise thing to do. You know, I like to start in Proverbs. Um, so today happens to be the 31st. What an opportunity. A wonderful Proverbs. So if you brought your Bible, Proverbs 31. And today, instead of just getting one uh, verse, you're going to get a boatload of them because... Um, I think there is a chapter here that's about the women in this church. It's about the women that are in my life, and um, I think it warrants taking a couple minutes to read through Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10. So um, I don't know about you, but I have pictures in my Bible, and there's my wife's picture right there and my mother's picture right there, but it's in black and white words. It's not so much a photograph. Starting in 10, who can find a virtuous wife? For her worth is far above rubies. The heart of her husband safely trusts her so he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not evil all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. She is like the merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. She also rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and a portion of, for her maidservants. That's easy to do this time of the year because it's yet night till like 8 o'clock in the morning. It's a little different in July. Uh, 16, she considers a field and buys it. From her profits, she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and strengthens her arms. She perceives that her merchandise is good and her lamp does not go out by night. She stretches out her hands to the distaff and her, hands, her hand holds a spindle. She extends her hands to the poor. Yes, she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of the snow, uh, not afraid of snow for her household, because she put the plants in under the eaves and into the uh, garage so they wouldn't freeze. (laughs) For her household is clothed with scarlet. She makes tapestry for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them, and supplies sashes for the merchants. Strength and honor her clothing. She shall rejoice in time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and on her tongue is the law of kindness. She watches over the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many daughters have done well, but you excel them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is passing, but a woman who fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her own works praise her in the gates. Lord, I know this is how you see your daughters here today. 
Let it be, God. And just we, just we just pray over your daughters and ask God for life, for blessing, for encouragement, for physical strength, for joy, for blessing to be upon them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, um, um, the, other, the other issue of vision that I wanted to mention, this is a perfect segue for me to mention, is women. Um, when Lisa and I were asked to come to Crossroads, there were two things that really kind of spun up in my heart, uh, vision-wise, and one of them had to do with women. And I'm just going to mention this now. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but something good is coming for you ladies. Um, there is going to be um, um, a, a real push made for, uh, to, to invest in the spiritual lives of the women of the church. And so I'm going to mention this now. There will be more information coming about this, but we're going to be having opportunities, ladies, for uh, Bethmore Bible studies. And there will be an afternoon and an evening um, study available starting in January. And um, the study is going to start on Esther. I encourage you ladies to get involved. Not just so that you can learn about the book of Esther. Probably most of you have read it already. But because the, the relationships that happen when women get together build you. They will build you. They will help you carry the, the, the weights that you need to carry, but you're just going to have enlarged hearts. And uh, I just really think it's a good thing. And I'm, I really believe this church needs to be behind blessing the ladies here. So guys, we'll just, uh, I don't know what that means for the guys, but we're going to put the women first, right? Eric, you and I are going to put the women first. Right, guys? Yeah, okay. Okay, so um, today we're going to continue, and we're, um, we've been talking about relationships. Three weeks ago, we, we talked about the real housewives of Philippi. Remember, it was on unity. And then uh, the week after that, we talked about two big mistakes. Don't ever discard a heart. Don't ever discard anybody else's heart. And when you give out mercy and grace, use a great big scooper because that's the, the kind of measurement that God will use with you. Last week, we talked about relationships to one another. Today, we're going to talk about the most important relationship that you want to be involved with, especially when a megastorm comes along, a megastorm. I had no idea that that's a word that, um, that our Lord used, megastorm. We're going to find that out. So today, our text is in Matthew 8. So if you have your Bible, go to Matthew 8, and we're going to read together um, verses 18 to 27. This is a familiar story. Um, it's, uh, Jesus has been ministering to a whole lot of people. He did some ministry from a boat, then on the land, and basically he says it's about time to go across to the other side of the lake. We say lake. Um, it's um, Galilee. And, and uh, um, so this is the setting. He's, he's saying, let's go. So starting in verse 18. And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm going to just make a couple comments as we move along here. This scribe was kind of self-serving. Jesus already knew what was in his heart. A specific scribe who said, I will follow you wherever you go. He knew that Jesus had resources available and he figured his resources would get resolved if he hung out with Jesus. Here's Jesus' answers. He says, and Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, you're not going to get rich following me. I don't know what happened to this scribe, but I'm going to guess we can figure it out. And it's interesting, when Jesus describes himself here, he says, son of man. I don't know about you, but for, for years, I would read the word son of, the, the, this title, son of man in the scripture, and I, I, I just thought it was this exalted title. What does that mean? It didn't make sense to me. And um, I'm not sure if I have the answer yet, but I'm going to tell you what I got at the moment. And um, I think sometimes when you take the word of, lit, word of God literally, it seems to kind of sort itself out. Jesus was actually born of a man. 
I think in terms of being a son, there's two types of sons, sons of man and sons of God that are described in the Bible. There are only two people that, that are described as sons of God. Adam is a son of God. He wasn't born of a woman. And Jesus, also son of God. There, is a, there are some promises, though, that will give us the opportunity to become sons of God. That's a pretty profound thing when you understand. But when he describes himself as a son of man, he is talking about and underscoring his humanity. He's underscoring the fact that he's not this, he's not God walking around all the time, insulated from all of the difficulties of being human. He's just like you and me, part and parcel. Everything that we face and difficulties we have, they're common to him as well. Son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now, I've read that scripture and I thought, you know what? Wow, the guy wants to go bury his father. I know, I felt when my father died. I wanted to bury my father. It was hard. I needed to be with family. And this seems so insensitive, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's like, that doesn't seem right, Jesus. Come on, I mean, be sensitive. Here's what's going on there. there. This is a place where Jesus is rightly demonstrating. I really believe rightly demonstrating the correct priorities for relationships. Our relationships need to be God first, then family. It's hard, it's hard to see that. I don't think Jesus was being insensitive here. I think Jesus knew exactly what needed to happen, and yet um, it's an interesting interesting deal because the first time I ever thought, I'm thinking, man, that seems so hard. Now, when he got into a boat, his disciples followed him and suddenly a great tempest arose on the sea so that the boat was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Then, uh, then his disciples came to him and awoke him saying, Lord, save us, we are perishing. But he said to them, why are you so fearful, O you of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea and there was a great calm. So the men marveled saying, what can this be that even the winds and the sea obey him? Sometimes, I think we all um, have to point the bow of our boat. We've got to point it, point it into the wind because, you know, things come along. But every once in a while, a storm of unexpected and furious proportion will show up in life. I mean, social scientists have a list. Here are the events that when they occur in your life, they will bring in great stress, things like the death of a mate or um, a divorce or... Um, change of career. Just all, there's, there's a list of things that, that, that bring stress into our lives, but somewhere at the top of that list are the issues that, that maybe would fall in the category of being this furious, unexpected storm. Um, I've probably had a couple of those in my life, and um, uh, I'm going to share a little bit about one with you that, was, that I was a peripheral party to. It wasn't, I wasn't central in it. Lisa and I have lots of friends, and um, we grew up with friends who had children the same ages of our children and our children grew up together. And um, we would have birthday parties for our kids and when our boys were five, we had our birthday cakes and we took them all to the fire station and they put on the hats and the boots and we took their pictures and these are the kind of friends we're talking about, kids that grew up with us, uh, friends of our friends or children of our friends. You know, when a phone call, when your phone rings in the middle of the night, most of the time it's we assume this can't be good. Now, I think we've had lots of phone calls over the years in the middle of the night. Lots of them. They're the wrong number, 
or they're someone who's insensitive, or <laughs> there's all kinds of things. There's not very many of them that really that are, that are really, really what you anticipate, the really bad, but, but we got a really bad phone call. This is about six years ago in this month. is kind of the anniversary, six years ago. And it was probably about four or so in the morning, the phone rings. And um, sometimes in the middle of the night, if the phone rings, I'm there. This particular one, I was in a fog. <laughs> you, know, you know what I'm talking about? You, know, you don't really know what you're saying or who you're talking to or what's going on. That was me that time. And there was the desperate voice of um, a close friend, um, a gal. And she was hysterical. I'm on my way to, um, to a lake. My son is missing. Now, at this point, the little boy has grown up, and he's 23. And um, out of sensitivity, I don't want to go into great detail here except to say that I spent, I spent that morning huddled on the lake shore with people I love, a couple I love, watching across the waters as um, county divers were looking. And um, eventually they recovered the, uh, the temporary tent of, of our friend's son. And um, there we were, and it seemed like the quiet of the morning. It seemed like birds were chirping, but it felt like waves that were 40 feet tall we're crashing in over the top of the wheelhouse. That is one cool outfit. You should see the socks on this baby match the jacket. They're pretty cool. And, um, I mean, I don't know how you get through a day like that, let alone days or weeks. No parent should ever, ever have to bury their own children. And uh, out of sensitivity to those of you who may be tender today, for losses you've walked through recently or walked with someone through recently, please forgive me for having stirred into tender areas. But the waves were coming, and there's no way to turn back the windstorm at this point. You know, when you find yourself in the middle of the lake in those moments, and you expect Jesus to be standing there with his arms on your shoulders, holding back the wind and the waves, but he's not there because he's sleeping on the cushion. All kinds of questions come to the front. All kinds of questions show up. I want to talk about that a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about that. Um, and I want to get off that topic <laughs> anyway. Um, I, I don't know about you, but um, when the movie Avatar came out, I wanted to go see it in 3D. <laughs> I mean, I'm up for a good action movie, um, but you know, I wanted to go see it in 3D, so I was careful not to go see it anywhere except 3D for the first three times or so. <laughs> in fact, it was so crazy. I saw it in 3D. Then I went back with friends to see it in 3D. Then I went to the other theater to see what their 3D looked like, and I thought the first 3D was better than... Anyway, so... What is it about 3D? Sometimes it's really good to be able to stand back and look at the same object from another viewpoint. And I mentioned that to you because I want to go back into the same text again, but let's just take a look at it from the viewpoint of um, Mark. 
Same story. And let's flip over to Mark chapter 4 and start in verse 35. I've got that for you if you didn't happen to bring it. You know, tell me, when I put these up here, is, the, is this too small in the back row? It might be. I'm never sure what size to make it. Seems like we're on the limit. We're okay, okay. So um, we're going to go through it this time. And even though I interrupted it the last time, we're going we're to kind of pick our way through it and see with a little more analysis what's going on here. Because we might see that things are a little different than they appear. Even though Jesus is in the back on the pillow, things might just be a little different than we're thinking. On the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side. Jesus was already thinking about the ministry he was calling them to on the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he was, and other little boats were with him also. Now here's the deal with boats. Um, these are fishing boats. They're, they have, they're, they're sail-powered. They have oars because there were certain ways and times that they would actually fish and they would have to row around. But these were sail-powered boats for the most part. And, um, you know, things were kind of opposite of what you would think. In these days, military vessels were oar-powered because, you know, you could put your slaves down on the bottom, you could force them to row, you could propel yourself regardless of the wind, you could speed up, you could slow down. So agility was important in the military, they would row. But merchants, merchant ships, wind-powered. You could move them forward and you didn't have to pay a lot of employees or have slaves to make them go. So it made sense to, to harness the power of the wind. These are fishermen. They got a, they got a sailing boat. If you've ever sailed before, um, I've only had little tiny bits of sailing in small boats, you know that you are completely dependent on the wind being kind of in a very narrow band um, to, be, to, to work for you properly. Unless you are a very skilled sailor, if you don't have any wind, you're not going anywhere no matter how good a sailor you are. If you have too much wind, you can be in real trouble. Now, if you're a reasonable sailor, a little more wind like that can be a blast. But like a guy like me, I can get out in a little bit too much wind, and I went out on a lake one time, and the people on the shore watched and laughed and clapped as I spun the boat and capsized it, I think, seven or eight or 15 times before they finally thought, okay, that's enough. Let's go pull the boy out of the water. And um, um, obviously, I made it and so forth, but... These guys were sailors, experienced, and they, they set out, and God knows they're going to go out in a sailboat. God, they, they, God knows that they're depending on him to push them along to the right place at the right speed. Not too little wind, not an outrageous amount, and they're, they're used to being out on the lake. They know about the storms that happen on this, this lake. They know, they know how to conduct themselves. These people are experienced, but they do require something of the correct amount of wind and they don't see that as their purveyance. They, they can't control the wind. Verse 37, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now, the word great here is a Greek word, megas, M-E-G-A-S, mega. A mega windstorm. Oh, I thought that was so cool. I thought mega was a new word. It's an Old Testament, or it's a New Testament word. It's, a, it's been around for thousands of years. Then the windstorm, this, here's the deal. This lake was uh, below sea level. It was about... I don't know, the, the measurements vary. So anywhere from about four and a half miles wide to seven miles wide, but about 12 or 13 miles long. Pretty big lake, surrounded by mountains, and below sea level. So what would happen is the air would come over those mountains and start to drop down. As it would drop down, it would compress, and as it would compress, it would get hotter. The, it would, the heat would push. It would be, without much warning, the place could get pretty stormy. It was very common to happen in the afternoon. Now, they're going out at nighttime, and it should have been okay. Things calmed down. But... It's very common for this, this lake to get into uh, a storm. The storm that we're talking about here probably had waves of 20 feet. Now, 
I don't know what you think about 20-foot waves. Um, we had some storms here a couple weeks ago, a week and a half ago, and um, off the ocean, out on the ocean now, on the open ocean, they were having 30-foot waves. So those are a little bit bigger. But at 30 feet, the U.S. Coast Guard shut down Grays Harbor, the mouth, um, the entrance to um, the Columbia, and um, Hasita Head, and Lincoln, Lincoln um, all, those, all, all down Oregon and Washington. The Coast Guard said, if you're at sea, you will stay at sea. The harbors are closed. No one's crossing or coming in at 30-foot waves. So that's a bigger wave, admittedly, on the ocean, but with boats in today's technology. So these guys are out on this lake, 20-foot waves. And experienced sailors are, are fearing for their lives. This is worse than they're used to, and they really feel like this is outside their scope. Verse 38, but he was in the stern, asleep on the pillow. <laughs> okay. You mean, I would think the safest place in the universe to be would be at Jesus' side. And indeed it is. Even if he's asleep. But there is another. Now, these boats weren't like cruise liners. It wasn't like he had his own cabin. There was a bench in the back, and it would have uh, like a sheepskin pad on it. And if you turned the pad over, you'd fold it up a little bit. It might get up to be enough to be a pillow. So it's not like he's in the lap of luxury, but he's out. Jesus is sleeping. And he's not feigning sleep, pretending to be asleep so that he can wake up and save the day. That's not who Jesus is. No, he's actually asleep. He's been ministering all day, he's dead dog tired. He's out, and although the waves are coming in, he's got to be getting wet. I mean, wouldn't that wake you up? He's asleep. There must have been something present of tranquility that was weighed down in his soul. I mean, tranquility, I mean, calmness, settledness. It had to be down in there because none of this bothered him. Remember, this is the son of man we're talking about here. You know, there are some Greek stories and um, in, in some Greek stories, the, the Greek philosophers, there was a, 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 the, test, a, the test of the, their own philosophy about tranquility, a test about their own ability to gather peace, was testing them in storms. This is an example of something that would have been very common to the people of the day. This story, this parable, this, this experience, wasn't a parable, this experience would have been a very common commonly understood picture of testing of people's philosophies of peace in their day. So I got a question, rhetorical, don't answer this question. Are you, you, alone, when you're alone by yourself, are you so grounded in what you believe that you're able to sleep at night regardless of the wave height around you? And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? Don't you care we're all dying? Why, do we twin, why, why is it that the first assumption we make is that God doesn't care about us? That's the first place we go. The waves are coming. God, why don't you love me? The first place we go. We make an assumption he's sleeping because he doesn't care. I don't know why I do that. I do it too. I know none of you do it, but I go there too. I do, I do it less in life. I think sometimes that's a, um, a lie that gets whispered in there. God doesn't love you, Terry. The reason he's sleeping is because he doesn't give a rip about what happens to you. Those are lies. They're just meant to get lodged down in your heart 
and to begin to fester and to cause some separation and tearing, to tear down your faith, to cause you to feel alone, to cause you to feel hopeless. They're lies and they're just not true. Scripture says, then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. Now, every time I've ever read this, I get this picture, you know, not, not a prophetic picture, but I just imagine this picture, you know, the meadow, the sun comes out, the, the clouds part, the birds are going tweet, tweet, you know, like, you know, like Cinderella or one of those <laughs> things, you know, and the, the fawn comes up and stands at the side. I know it's deer season is ending. Is today the last day of deer season? We're missing hunters, I know, so it must still be deer season. God protect him, but let him win. Okay, so, uh, so he says, peace be still. That's the picture. But, but, but literally, that's mistranslated. The word peace is an acceptable translation, but what he's actually saying literally is, be gagged. He is saying the exact same phrase here, the exact same words here that he says in, in uh, Mark 1, when he confronts a, de- a demon and he says, quiet, close your mouth, excuse me, shut up. I mean, it's a forceful, I don't know if you can say that at your house. Some houses don't say that, so forgive me if that's a nun, if you're not supposed to say that at your house. We say that at our house because we have poodles. <laughs> he says, be gagged. Interesting that he didn't say, quit blowing or settle down or see go flat. He says, be gagged, muzzled. It's, there's another place that you hear that same, same word used, and Gabriel pays a visit to a guy named Zacharias. We might hear something about him in December. I'm so looking forward to December. We're going to be in the Christmas story. Won't it be fun? <laughs> yeah. Um, I love Christmas. By the way, we put outlets on the building. We're going to put Christmas lights on the building. Okay, so. <laughs> so, so Gabriel shows up, and he says to Zacharias, hey, you're going to have a baby boy. It's going to be special. And Zacharias says, I'm old and so is my wife. Have you looked at her? We're going to have a baby? That's what he says, okay? Check it out. That's what he says. Okay, I might have paraphrased it just a little bit. And Gabriel says, all right, because you don't believe me when you should have, you'll be gagged now until it it takes place. Same words there. Gabriel, by the way, there's only a few angels, lots of angels described in the Word of God, but only three of them, I think, I've only found three that are actually named in the Bible. Gabriel, who always, he's always doing, he's always proclaiming something uh, messianic. He's always something about the Messiah. Michael, who always, anytime he's mentioned, he, he shows up as the captain of the guard and there's something militant going on. And then the, the, the other one is Satan, whose name is mentioned in here and he's called by different names as well. But Gabriel says, you're gonna now be gagged. Same words. Instead of Jesus saying, Stop blowing when he says be gagged. It's like he's talking to demonic forces. There's a suggestion there, an implication. I believe that Jesus is actually not speaking to the wind currents. He's speaking to the spirits that are driving them. This was a full-blown attempt to stop the ministry that was going to go on on the other side of the the lake. And you know what the next thing is that happens? They get off the boat, and we're not going to go there because that's not part of our text today, but they get off the boat, and the first thing he encounters is a demoniac. And there's an argument that goes on there. Oh, oh, what have we had to do with you, Jesus? Leave us alone. And, and then they say, instead of doing anything really bad to us, could you make us go into that, that herd of pigs? And Jesus says, okay, go there. The pigs run off and drown themselves in the sea. An interesting story. But that's the next thing that's coming. 
Now, the demons don't know the future, but they know their future is not a good one. So Jesus doesn't speak to the forces of nature. He speaks to the demonic that's driving that wind. Now, I'm not telling you that every time you feel a puff of wind, there's a demon blowing. But I believe there was in this case. There was something going on here that was trying to short-circuit something that the Lord wanted to do. You know, I, it drives me crazy when things like hurricanes, Katrina is called an act of God. You know, you sign an insurance policy, you get an insurance policy and it says it will cover you from this, 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 but no acts of God. Like somebody who, has, who sells insurance could protect you from an act of God anyway. What it should say, they, what they should do is they should lower the G on those. Because God does not send hurricanes to wipe out cities. That's just not God's nature. There's nothing in scripture that says he, he does that. In fact, he promised not to do that. Anyway, I'm going to get off course here if I don't. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Guess what? Same word, mega. Mega storm? Oh yeah? Mega calm. Okay, I like to play with math. So does mega storm plus mega calm divided by two equal average? I'd say no. I don't think that's what's going on here. This isn't God saying, well, you've had some really low lows, so I'm going to give you an equal high so that overall you're just plain average. That is not what's going on here. This is Jesus saying, no, no, no. The storm was huge, but I'm going to drive you to the opposite end of the spectrum. Your place to live isn't going to be average. Your place to live is going to be at that place where there is something mega about your tranquility, something mega about your calmness, something that way supersedes average because my heart for you isn't average. And he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And it's interesting too, just seeing the sequence of what he's doing here. I love Jesus' tender heart because he... He fixed the problem. He fixed the problem. And then he said the challenging words. He didn't rebuke them. He didn't unlovingly say, oh, get your faith together first. He didn't, he didn't somehow squash their will. Instead, he fixed the dilemma. And then he challenged and did something to grow their hearts and their faith. And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? That's, there, there's a cultural relevance to that phrase. The, it was common among the people of those days to believe that the forces of nature were all being driven by spirits, by, by angels specifically, that angels caused things to happen. Except the wind and the sea were controlled only by God himself. That was the cultural belief of the day. The sea and the winds were controlled by God himself. The angels, a lower rank apparently of divinity, controlled the rest of the stuff. So when Jesus controlled the wind and the sea, by the way, let me back up a minute. When it says he was great calm, the wind didn't just stop. The sea went flat. Think that through for a minute. 20-foot waves, if you, read, if you take the wind away immediately, there's still some of this that's going on. How long does it take? Those waves, they travel, they go across the lake, they come back across. I mean, 
Any water skiers here? No? You know, one boat goes through a lake, and how long do you have to wait until you get a flat lake? It takes a long time from a little tiny wake, 20-foot waves, but the, sea, the wind stopped and the lake went flat. Miraculous. You know, I think that Jesus, you know, people, I hear arguments sometimes that people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. It's just not true. There are place after place after place. Here's an example. Jesus knows that, con- that, that culturally people believe the only one who can control is the, the control the, 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 the sea and the wind is God. And Jesus says, okay, I'm going to show you. <laughs> Controls it. So those arguments that he's never claimed to be God, that, that's just hogwash. I don't know that. So okay, here's what we're going to do now. We're kind of head, heading around the corner towards the end of our message. I'm going to give you what I'm going to call quick fire one-liners. Okay, it's because I watch Top Chef and they have quick fire challenges there. Because I know you guys, you're so holy, you don't watch TV. You spend your evenings praying, right? I, that's probably true for some of you, and I shouldn't, you know. Okay, forgive me. Um, so, quick fire one-liners. I'm just, I'm not going to elaborate on these. I'm just going to put them up and let them kind of get in. And so here they come. Afternoon storms are common, but storms that happen in the darkest night test our faith. Many claim trust in Jesus' power over their storms, but lose trust when the storms arrive. Saying we believe that Jesus can help us takes on a whole new meaning when we actually depend on him for help. Make your request and then trust him to answer. Satan hates people to believe in Jesus. He will try to break your faith. Faith dispels fear in proportion to its strength. In the presence of Jesus, we can have peace even in the wildest storms of life. The real tragedy isn't that we don't know what to do, but that often we don't submit to Jesus' guidance when we do know what to do. That's why I suggest that you ask for his will and submit to it. That will drive you into peace Every time, you know, back to that four in the morning phone call that we had, those, some, the, when the storms come that are just without warning, they're furious, the water's coming over the sides of the boat, you know, we can find ourselves crying out to the Lord. We just find ourselves crying out saying, you know, I'm your son. I'm trying the best I can. I go to church. I give my tithes. I pray for people. I'm a nice guy. Don't I have the right to a storm-free journey, God? Don't I have the right to that? That's our first, first thing. We say, you know, you're sovereign. Isn't your sovereignty extend out over my life like I would want to do over my kids? Is your timetable, is my timetable so messed up that I'm completely out of touch? Are you sleeping, God? Are you indifferent? You know, we ask those questions, and the answers to those questions will be determined by, by where you have your focus. If your focus is on the storm, your answer is going to come back being panic, discouragement. If your focus is on Jesus, here's what Scripture says for you. says for you, you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Perfect peace. Perfect peace. Psalm 107 has a um, passage in there 
about being at sea. It says, those who go down to the ship in seas, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens. They go down again to the depth. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at, the wits, at their wits' end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distress. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet, so he guides them to their desired haven. For me, I, it's time to nudge my heart now into the green zone. You know, I like to ask you to nudge your heart into the green zone. And here are the topics for nudge today. Do you want to be able to sleep? Rhetorical question. How, how have you misjudged the heart of the Lord just by looking at the circumstances instead of what you know to be true about God? What other wrong assumptions are at work in your life, in your way of thinking, that are impacting how you walk with the King? And how often is it that you actually miss seeing his favorable hand being applied to your circumstances? When we um, allow fear and temptation to overcome us, our faith in Christ is asleep. It's actually sleeping. If we remember that he's there, we can wake him up. He'll speak and he'll quiet the tempest in our soul. And then we'll walk in mega calm. There was a pastor named Edward Hooper. He, was, he pastored a church in New York called the Church of Sea and Land. In, uh, this is back in the middle 1800s. He actually wrote several hymns, but all of them were anonymous. And they opened a museum in 1888 or some sort of a seaman's uh, support hall. And, uh, and they knew he had an um, ability to write poetry and and. And so they asked him if he would write a special song for the opening of this center. And he didn't write one. He just brought one to them, which he had written and had already become a hymn. Nobody knew who had written it. He, he kind of exposed himself at that point. It's called Jesus, Savior, Pilot Me. And I'm not going to sing it to you because I love you too much. <laughs> but I will read it to you. Poetry is good for you anyway. We're going to add some culture to the service today. And for all of you tough guys, you know, go to the ballet sometime. That's good for you too, all right? No sale, I can tell. Jesus, Savior, pilot me over life's tempestuous sea. Unknown waves before me roll, hiding rock and treacherous shoal. Chart and compass come from thee, Savior Jesus, pilot me. As a mother stills her child, thou canst hush the ocean wild. Boisterous waves obey thy will when thou sayest to them, be still. Wondrous sovereign of the sea, Jesus, Savior, pilot me. When at last I near the shore and the fearful breakers roar, twixt me and the perfect rest, then while leaning on thy breast, may I hear thee say to me, fear not, I will pilot thee. Have you discovered yet what kind of man Jesus is? I'm going to pray for you and I want to pray about two things. I want to pray about storms and I want to pray about relationships. If you try to navigate through these storms without the relationship of Jesus, you can't know the calm and tranquility we're talking about here. And I want every person in this room to know that. So would you close your eyes and pray with me? 
Lord, first, I know there are people in this room who are bearing up under extraordinary weight today because of personal loss. And I ask God for a visit upon their soul. Lord, we know that you don't sleep with indifference in the back of the boat. We know instead that it's the absolute apex of tranquility, of faith in your heart. Let that be ours as well, God. For people today who are hurting and need a visit of rest and calmness, we ask you to speak it over them in the name of Jesus. We speak it over them and release it upon them in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I also ask God now for a tenderness of hearts about your, your, your relationship with them. Holy Spirit, go to work in this room. Church, while we're praying and eyes are closed, I give opportunity. I'd like to just for a moment give an opportunity for anyone here who has never opened their heart to the Lord. The Word of God basically says that there is no way to relationship with the Father except through the Son, Jesus. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, it's a simple decision to say, yes, I acknowledge He came for me. If you've never opened your heart to the Lord, you should do it right now. Right now. And I just want to agree with you. While people, are, are, people aren't looking, I'm going to look across the room, and if you want to open your heart to the Lord, just look at me and just, just let me agree. That's all. I'm not going to point you out. Right now. Okay. Now, while we're still praying, let's all keep our eyes closed. And if you're presently bearing up under something extraordinary and you need the Lord's um, you need the Lord awake and his presence to calm the storm just put your hands in front of you like he was going to hand you a loaf of bread something as simple as that and let's pray God you see the posturing of your kids here your sons and your daughters those of us that are asking God for a visit now would you just now speak to to the winds Speak to the seas, Lord, and cause there to become a calming. God, we thank you that you love us the way you do, that your heart for us isn't to get us back to average, but to drive us to to mega tranquility. So God, release that upon us, your kids, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Amen. Do you want them to stand to their feet? Yes.